0: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastic. As we enter month five of the coronavirus pandemic in the United States, while many countries around the world slowly ease back into some semblance of normality, it can be really difficult not to despair. Infection and death rates are rising, especially in states that rushed to reopen. And now some states that did reopen too fast are putting restrictions back in place. One of the few lights in the darkness has been Philip Alcabes, whose bird's-eye view of the pandemic in essays on our website has paid particular attention to how its effects play out in the unequal society in which we live. His most recent essay, Bodies and Breath, connects COVID-19's disproportionate effect on Black communities to the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests. The essay draws on the work of longtime scholar contributor Harriet Washington, who has won the National Book Critics Circle Award for her writing on racism and medicine. My first introduction to her work was her cover story in the scholar's autumn 2015 issue, The Well Curve, which explored how infectious diseases devastate not only the bodies, but also the minds of the global poor, and how that devastation plays out along familiar patterns of race and ethnicity. Given the unfortunate prescience of her work, we invited Harriet Washington to join Philip Alkebys for a discussion with me about how public health cannot be divorced from the fractures in our society. Thank you both so much for joining me from your different corners of New York City.
1: Pleasure to be here. Or pleasure to be with you. Not pleasure to be here
2: where I am. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Thank you, Stephanie. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: So firstly, how are you both feeling as people who write about public health and medicine, going in on month five of the coronavirus pandemic in the U.S.?
2: Well, I think it's a very unsettling feeling for almost anyone. And um, I think for most of us, unlike like anybody else, it's sort of a constant battle to stay upbeat and focus on the positive things that are happening, because we know there are a lot of negative things happening, a lot of disappointments in the way that we have uh, chosen to address this pandemic, Um, a lot of anxiety as well especially for people like me who read a lot of apocalyptic literature. <laughs> um, but I think it's also important. Um, I keep thinking of, I forget who said this, but it became a cliche, I think, because it's true. Um, when you lose, don't lose the lesson. So even in thinking about the negative aspects, I try to always focus on, you know, what, how, things, how could things be done better next time? Yeah, I'm glad Harriet said that.
1: Uh, thanks, Harriet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The, the lesson has been on my mind mm-hmm. since March. What, what are we learning from this? And will we do it better? Um, I don't know. And the question of what the lesson should be has been for me so disconcerting because I'm an epidemiologist by training. I read the data, or read the publications of the data, instinctively Focus on the shortcomings of the data, wonder what it is we know. And I also, like Harriet, very... I, I, I live in the world, as we all do, as we do. If, you, if you're not living under a rock right now, it's a sad and kind of grief-stricken time for everyone. And then, as Harriet mentioned, an anxious one. It's impossible. I think it must be impossible to not be anxious right now. So I feel all of that. And there's a, I feel the tension in myself between, you know, wanting to be the super smart scientist and figure it out and just being, you know, another old guy who's worried about the world.
0: Yeah. And I feel like a lot of that anxiety has really been compounded by all of the other things going on at the same time. I'm thinking particularly of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter protests, which is something that you touched on, Phil, in your most recent essay for the American Scholars website, and which, Harriet, you've been writing about for nigh on a decade now, The Intersection of Health and Racism. So I wanted to start, Phil, by asking you to expand on this quotation from the beginning of that essay, a quote from a friend about how police brutality is not just one public health crisis on top of another, but one more round in a long, unceasing battering. What does that mean?
1: What I see happening with coronavirus right now is a reconstructing of the edifice of Public health as usual, and public health as usual in America, always well, generally means that certain lives will be considered more dispensable than others, particularly particularly Black Americans and Black and Brown Americans here. Um, that what we're, we're seeing already, and you probably have seen the the articles that. The, the mortality rate in the coronavirus outbreak in America is between two and three times higher for Black and Hispanic Americans than for white Americans. And I, what I see happening is this old story that medical research has proceeded unbelievably fast in six months. It's already known how to prevent death in some people who are seriously ill with with COVID 19, dexamethasone, um, Gilead's drug is is looking like it's is looking promising. There's more information about when to use ventilators and when not. Um, but but the the story in America has always been those innovations move forward to the point that affluent what affluent and usually white people can be protected, and then we just don't bother addressing the social conditions that make everybody else more vulnerable. And
2: that's what I see happening already. Phil is absolutely right. You know, if we look at public health, I think it's very important for us to understand that there are um, areas of public health that are carefully curated so that we don't necessarily hear about them. They're not necessarily presented as problems, and yet they are very important problems. we're looking at biopower essentially, based on what Phil said about some lines being considered more important than others. And what we're seeing in part is that we have a, we have populations that are disproportionately exposed to environmental toxins. These toxins um, cause every risk factor for coronavirus. We have populations that do not have personal physicians at a very high rate who don't have health insurance, who work in jobs where they're not uh, allowed to take the day off if they're ill, who who find that the hospitals near them with emergency departments that have been safety nets for people with no doctors and no health insurance have been closed precipitously. So we have been slowly taking away a large swath of people's access to health care. And then when the pandemic struck our shores, we failed to look at data in a way that makes sense. We already know from HIV disease that medically underserved people who are people of color were more likely to become ill and not get appropriate treatment. Now in this country, HIV disease is basically a disease of people of color. We knew with hepatitis C, African-Americans had 20% higher rates of infection and fared worse with disease. So how is it that when we are faced with a pandemic, we don't immediately look at racial data to try to determine if there's a disparity there? there was one, we did not see it for far too long. And so now we're playing catch up. But the silence, you know, the careful curation of risk factors, uh, such that the risk factors that affect people of color tend not to get much attention until we deem them important for attention, it's part of the problem here. You have people who have basically been set up to become infected and become ill at higher rates. And it's, Not that great of a mystery, frankly. But the other thing that's going on, in my opinion, with coronavirus infection and violence, I find very um, interesting because when we look at Black Lives Matter, a lot of the focus is on the violent confrontations, which is understandable. But I remember that they did not start with Black Lives Matter. They actually, um, in my opinion, started with violence against Asian Americans based on the belief by many, abetted by our language. The semantics were just horrific, where we were talking about Wuhan flu, Chinese flu, Kung flu. And what happened? We had 100 Asian people a day being violently targeted by others because they were considered uh, reservoirs of the infection, or spreading the infection. And we have a body of research showing that xenophobia rises during the time of infection. Chad Mortensen did that study um, on pregnant women showing that... um, In their first semester pregnant women tend to become more xenophobic more wary of strangers because their immune system has been damped to protect the fetus and there are many other studies i don't know if taken together they really present a collective um, embodiment of proof but they're intriguing correlations so seeing this rise of violence on xenophobia concomitant with the rise of coronavirus didn't surprise me at all it seems like a natural progression and it's also very interesting to me as a sort of um, physical extension of our psychological state. So it's bad news no matter how you look at it, (laughs) but it's also bad news that could have been preventable if we had better policies in place and we had been more alive to vulnerabilities that we knew about. Yeah, that
1: concept of curation is so important. And that's a very nice way, to summarize the aspect of your most recent book. I mentioned that in the essay, Uh, A Terrible Thing to Waste, because it's about policy, which, Harry, you just mentioned at the end, that creates vulnerability in communities, primarily poor Black and Hispanic communities. And, And this is where I see the connection around violence. There's, the kind of violence that, the, that uh, people undertook against Asians because of our language about coronavirus. There's the, what, is, what is an all too traditional sort of violence, uh, all, too, all too traditionally acceptable sort of violence toward black bodies, particularly on the part of, lately, police, but on the part of white Americans. And then we also see this slower violence Uh, against communities in the form of closing hospitals. Or with coronavirus, we've seen that the publicly supported hospitals, which are not always predominantly minority, but usually, have uh, higher fatality rates from coronavirus than the private hospitals where people go who have private insurance. There, there's pretty good data from New York City. So here we see policy essentially curating these slower forms of violence. The coronavirus outbreak has really exacerbated that. I I made a point that some of the news sources like to say, well, coronavirus is highlighting the this or highlighting the that. And, and I feel, well, if that had to be highlighted for you, then you haven't been paying attention.
0: Yeah, I think it can be really hard to see how all of these factors, which you explain so well in your book, Harriet, are actually health issues, where you live, what kind of mortgage you're able to get, what kind of job you're able to land. All of this is tied to race, to access, to health, to wealth, and to what kind of pollution and policies are affecting the very air you breathe and and the water you drink. Think of Flint, Michigan. And then, of course, how much money you make and what kind of care you can afford, or what kind of health insurance you can afford, since that is not yet a right in this country. It is something that people are saying the pandemic is highlighting. And I'm wondering how the discourse has failed us in framing this as a public health issue.
2: In my opinion, we are using semantics in a manner, it creates a kind of new speak in the public health arena, as far as I'm concerned. And we use semantics in a way that, tends to elide the true nature of what we're looking at. For example, we've several times mentioned income in regard to both environmental racism and regard to access to health care. And it's true, income is definitely a factor. If you're poor, underemployed, it is that much harder to get health insurance and access to care. But income is not the primary factor, it's race. And part of the problems I see is that we have been reluctant to admit when this is a racial situation we find it more comforting to cloak it in socioeconomic language because it's less shameful to say we have a country where people are separated from healthcare because of their poverty than because of their race but it's the latter that's going on i point out in uh, a terrible thing the ways i talk about the fact that it's we're talking about solidly middle-class African-Americans very often who are exposed to environmental racism. People who would not seem to be candidates for that exposure except that they're African-Americans. They live in the suburbs. They have moderate incomes, 50000 $60,000 a year. They're more likely to be exposed to environmental racism than very poor whites whose income is only $10,000 a year, profoundly poor, but they have less exposure. So we're often talking about race. We're not talking about economics. Even when we're talking about things like being made to live in an apartment, where it's harder to practice social distancing than owning your own house, you have to consider that it's not just economics. It's credit um, inequities and redlining that are keeping African American out of their own homes. When we first, uh, when we came to this country in um, the mid '60s, and my father trying to buy a house with a GI Bill, I looked over some of the mortgage papers that his white friends had given them, there was clear language in there. You had to sign, you know, a pledge or vow that you would not rent or um, sell your home to an African American. You know, what percentage white attract was, was a key factor in how desirable it was a place to live. So we're not talking about economics as much as we're talking about race and the failure to recognize that really doesn't help if we're to recognize inequities for what they really
0: are. Right, alighting race when talking about wealth is absolutely part of the problem because wealth is unequally distributed because of racism. Mm -hmm. And of course, those racial covenants can no longer be enforced and redlining no longer happens. So I wonder if you think that in addressing the policy issue, what we've really done is just drop the racist policy without trying to fix any of the problems said policy created.
1: And, And the question that comes to my mind, repeatedly comes to my mind is, where is the political will for fixing those policies? Uh, clearly, I, 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 would, I would add the question of wealth, which is separate from income is what, you're, what comes in every year, say, but wealth is what you've got. And policy has historically, policy in America, in many kinds of policies have historically militated against black people acquiring wealth to, so the, so we, both coronavirus and Black Lives Matter are making people look at this, but it's very hard, it's clear enough to see what good policies might look like, but very hard to see where the
2: political will is going to come from to make those happen. You know, one indication of political will that really chilled me and, and was actually a novelty to me when I, when I wrote my book, was I did not realize how many of the legal um, challenges that had been brought to environment, sources of environmental toxicity mm-hmm. failed because the law has decided that it's not enough to prove mm-hmm. that people of color are being forcibly exposed to environmental toxins. You have to prove that that was the intent of the ruling or the law. I don't know about you, but I don't know how you prove someone's intent. I'm not always sure my own intent when I do things. Um, Can't read minds. You can't necessarily know what's in people's hearts, but you can understand the foreseeable consequences of certain rules. And I was really struck by um, the court's pretty persistent failure to recognize that and to make people prove that the intention of the law had been to be be racist and it wasn't enough that the um, foreseeable outcome was. So I think your point about political will is very well taken. That's something that we also need more of.
0: Absolutely. And Phil, it reminds me of this line in your essay where you say toward the end, for many years, I thought that the denial of life to black Americans would be overcome once wealth was redistributed and American institutions had become fully just. Hmm. So what changed and why don't you think that anymore? Uh,
1: a friend of mine asked me that right after the American Scholar piece came out and uh I really had to think about like well how did that change I And mean, part of that was reading Harriet's work but I think I think I was already beginning to change. I was a I was a good leftist um, for most of my life. I just wanted a good social poli- you know good s- s- social policy, strong government that would make things fair for everybody and also as I mentioned in the piece You know, very fond of John Rawls's ideas about justice. Um, How great, right, a just society at last. But listening to the experiences of Black Americans reading Harriet's Medical Apartheid, which is a history of how my adopted profession, or at least medicine and public health, has repeatedly made use of Black bodies and the suffering of black bodies to, to create a new, an idea, maybe I should say curate, to take Harriet's term, uh, an idea that equates healthiness with whiteness in America. Those, that reading and listening to people, listening to my students, I, I teach at a public university, uh, really helped me to see that this is America's a different ball game. The theory the theory sounds great, but if it's going to if it's going to work here, it's going to have to take into account the experience of race and racial difference that has been ours from the get-go.
0: All of what we've been talking about shows pretty clearly how racism is embedded in public health and how racism, wealth and income are all deeply interrelated. And Harriet, I think your example of comparing middle class Black families and poor white families' exposure to toxicity really speaks to how there is a difference between wealth and race outcomes. And even more broadly, there is a difference between this kind of systemic racism that we've been talking about so far, and then the individual treatment that patients receive, and how that can be generalized, too, usually as implicit bias and is compounded by systemic racism. I'm thinking of mortality among black mothers, for instance, or how black diabetes patients are not given adequate cardiovascular care and instead just have their limbs amputated.
2: But, you know, there's, there's something else going on here. One, I've always found it interesting that how little discussion we have of explicit bias. And I, I think I, there are reasons for that. I mean, um, that go beyond discomfort with talking about what happens when people are... Um, pursuing agendas that clearly aren't based on misunderstandings or ignorance. And also, sometimes people pursue agendas that are, that are based on um, explicit bias, their opinion that there's a hierarchy in which African-Americans and Hispanics are lower than whites, and that they should be treated that way. And they hide behind claims of ignorance, naivete. This happens too but I can't tell you in great detail how often it happens and what it means because they're reluctant to look at it and to examine it. It's part of the triad here. You know, we've got implicit bias, we've got systemic bias, but we also have explicit bias, and that is something that also has to be addressed. It has to be addressed because the people who practice it, like others, are training future physicians and public health experts. And if their students are tacitly absorbing their values, then we're going to have this perpetuated. So we can't afford to simply ignore this. It's something we have to look at as well.
0: So both of you teach the next generation, the next crop of epidemiologists and public health specialists and whatnot. So how do you feel like racism of all stripes factors into how we educate the next generation to take on these public health issues?
1: When I teach undergraduates, what I read from them is this profound existential anxiety, like they're, I mean, Hunter College students are really smart, Uh, it's not easy to get get in, they're really good students, Uh, so they're very aware, they're self-aware, they're aware that there are these questions about race, Um, And they're aware, they're very aware of implicit bias, because that's, uh, I guess they're taught about that. They decry explicit bias, but I think they're, I feel that their anxiety about the world they're growing up into makes it hard for them to see how to address these questions. This spring, I taught Harriet's book, The, The Terrible Thing to Waste, and The students were very, very taken, kind of, I think I could say stricken, by what Harriet reports uh, about this this violence to uh, black communities, That particularly this point that Harriet just made. The students really react to the point that Harriet just made about uh, how a middle-class black person may be just as heavily exposed to toxins as a far poorer white person. But it's really hard for them. They don't feel like they even know how they're going to, you know, support themselves when they finish college. And I see these students really suffering. They want to make good policy. They want good policy, but they don't see the way. I also teach graduate students in, I teach an urban policy course. And they're much, much more, so they're a bit older. and. Uh, also very, you know, also lots of, lots of minority students, I have quite a lot of black students uh, in the graduate group, they're, they see what they want, they, they know what needs to change, but there's also a certain amount of despair, a sense that this, the institutions are so adept at keeping down those voices, those ideas that would redress the explicit forms of bias. That there it's a kind of double work. Here's the good policy, and then here's the work we would have to do
2: as black New Yorkers to make that happen. I, I teach bioethics students, and they're all grad students. And um, they're very, in fact, almost all of them, to, to a person they're very concerned about the different sorts of um biases that people face in the in the public health system and disabled students students of color they're alert to all of it a proportion of them are students who already work or plan to work for pharmaceutical companies which adds another level of tension because i've been very openly critical of the pharmaceutical Uh, companies. But I also think it's important that when they do the right thing, which they do too rarely, but they do sometimes do, it's important to, you know, encourage that and praise them. But Columbia, where I teach, I have seen some really important changes, I think, and we have to wait and let things play out. But one of the things that struck me was in 2019, the medical school and the school of public health was very acutely focused on its importance as um, you know, 400 years since the advent of African-Americans to our shores. And that became part of the curriculum. A lot of teaching around that, a lot of seminars, it reminded me of the University of Chicago uh, almost 10 years ago when they had invited me there. They actually changed their curriculum and spent the entire first month of medical school having people like me come in and offer a series of electives that would give them some of the history that had been neglected in their education up to that point. So I thought that was a brilliant approach because I felt, in a sense, they were partially inoculated against some of the omissions they were going to encounter later on. So some schools are alert to, you know, the lacuna here and are really trying to change things. And I'm just hoping that can become a larger model. I've noticed that that kind of trickles down from the top. When the top administrators think it's important, it has a way of filtering down to the rest of the departments. And so that gives me hope.
0: We have links to the essays and books mentioned by Harriet Washington and Philip Alcabees in the show notes. So be sure to check those out. There's really a lot to explore on this subject, and I could find no better guides than these two. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.